Sing it with me. This is my story. This is my song. Praising my Savior all the day long. This is my story. This is my song. Praising my Savior all the day long. All right. Hello, hello, and welcome back to the Wayward Podcast, where we learn to live life on the way of God's Word. I am so glad that you could join me here today, and I hope that you hear things in our time together that will add value to your life, your understanding, your relationship, and walk with God. If this is your first time here, welcome. This is the last episode in a series that has been going on about Jesus' good par- good Samaritan parable. And if you would like to get caught up on those previous episodes, I encourage you to go back and give those a listen. I think it'll be a lot of fun, uh, a lot of help. Um, if you have been following along in this series, congratulations, you're all caught up. <laughs> um, in our f- first episode... We just focused on observing the text, mainly Jesus's interactions with the law expert, and then the parable Jesus conveyed to him. And then in the next two episodes, we attempted to interpret those texts, interpreting the characters in Jesus's story and how they related to the law expert trying to understand what Jesus was trying to say to him and how he was trying to challenge him. And finally, now today, we get into the application, that wonderful question of what are we supposed to do with this material? And application of a text can be many things. And while we might frequently think of application in terms of action, Jesus' parable suggests that application can also be a matter of unlearning some things while learning new things and seeing new things or new ways of living. And these are, these are necessary steps if we are to eventually do things. So, with application in mind, what things are available within this text that the law expert could have seen or heard, unlearned, or learned anew? That's what we're going to get into starting right now. Uh, I I believe that there are about five things that... uh, I kind of uh, focus on here. There are probably more, but um, 
we'll go with these five. Um, I, again, I hope what you hear today is of great encouragement to you, edu- educating, insightful, uh, empowering. So um, I'm looking forward to it. I hope we have a great time. So let us begin. One of the first things that uh, I think we see here in this text, one of the things that's available here uh, that we can run with is that when the law expert was struggling with applying the law, we see that Jesus brought clarity through the form of story. And the structure of statutes, you know, like, uh, and like legal code or legal form, uh, the structure of statutes, ordinances, can create confusion. Story can bring clarity. Jesus' story did not overrule the law, but it brought an embodied dimension of clearness to the law and its practices. Uh, The law expert, he definitely had the knowledge of the law, but what he didn't have was the spirit of it. And Jesus' story helped bring out the merciful nature of loving his neighbor. Now, there are many of us who have knowledge, knowledge of the Bible, knowledge of all kinds of different verses, memory verses that we can recite, um, knowledge of commands and such. And, And we are able to rehearse those and recite those at whim, you know? But possession of knowledge is not possession of its clarity or its character. And just because we know something doesn't mean we can see. And just because we know something doesn't mean we are merciful. We can possess great knowledge of the Bible, and still be ignorant and merciless. We can possess great principles and still be indifferent to people. Jesus told a parable because it put a face onto the law expert's problem. Jesus' parable brought the law experts' struggle with selective mercy to life and confronted him with its absurd cruelty. So story, the form of story, is a flowing form that can bring clarity, whereas rules can often be too rigid to reveal clarity. So how might we apply this? I suggest and encourage us all, you and myself, get into the scripture's narrative. Get into the Bible's larger conversation. We need to, we need to be careful with abstract understandings of scripture. 
pulling out selective passages and pointing to them passionately and repeatedly, it doesn't mean that you've explained anything. It doesn't mean that you've understood anything. We, both we as individual Christians and the church, need to learn this. The law expert in this story, he belonged to a larger community of priests and scribes and scholars who were trying to be serious about its content. But because of issues, uh, you know, in the, in the region at this time and in the culture where standards were being compromised, their solutions were to create little laws, more laws, little clauses, law clauses, you know, uh, subordinances and such um, for every possible situation that was their solution but in the long run the law experts community began to somehow obsessively miss the forest for the trees and in a lot of ways the church today really needs to become reacquainted with the scriptural forest again to comprehend the Bible's larger narrative and the kind of culture and character that narrative calls us to. Now, personally speaking, in my own life, there, there were a lot of light bulbs that went on for me many years ago when I began to connect the dots of the scriptural story. And I believe that the church can experience the same thing when we begin to connect again, to the larger story the Bible is telling. All right, that is one thing. One down for it to go. Let me take a, a sip of iced coffee here, and we'll be off again. Uh, delicious. I don't know, I don't remember what the flavor was. It was. I think it was some kind of a French roast. I think it was like an amaretto French roast or something, but yeah, it's good. Over ice is really good. All right. Second thing. Jesus set his story on a real specific road to help the law expert visualize and empathize with what was happening. You know as well as I do that the familiar out-of-sight, out-of-mind comfort zone is a complacent one. It really does make ignorance feel like bliss. And that was a mindset that Jesus wanted to rescue the law expert from. And how might this be applied? We begin by understanding that we often are not able to see beyond our own perceptions and prejudices until we begin to connect with the larger settings or environments around us. I'll give you an example here of what I think I'm trying to get to. It's uh, here in my hometown of La Crosse, Wisconsin, we are having a huge homelessness problem in the city and it has been 
increasing and, and expanding for years. And it's very sad, but it's gotten to the point where uh, sizable camps of homeless individuals have taken shape. Like camp, camps have sprung up and taken shape at certain spots in the city. And they will they will camp at those spots for a while. Then the city clears them out and they will move on to another spot. And this kind of goes on for over and over again for a while. And last month, an area business group wrote a public letter to the mayor saying, we simply want this camp moved away from our community so our residents begin to feel safe again. There was more to the letter, but that was uh, one of the main parts. But a part of the mayor's response was that it is a common response for people to want camps moved anywhere not visible. Now, as I understand it, since then, uh, the city council has put together a new plan to respond to this issue, and we will wait to see how that goes. But you know what I mean? Uh, Jesus doesn't want the pain of the world to be invisible to his followers. Jesus wants his followers to be connected to the pain of the people around them. But that means learning to connect with the environments and settings around us. We can't learn to interact with people's stories or um, relieve people's sufferings until we learn to connect with the settings and conditions that are shaping their stories and their sufferings. One of the ways that we learn to do that is get to know our environment, to become familiar with its culture, to become familiar with the stories of that place. Just as Jesus' listener knew that robberies probably tended to happen on this particular road, we can consider the environments and settings in your city and consider what tends to happen in those areas that bring about pain and suffering. And as a pl- um, when applying this as a community, a church needs to learn this. Absolutely. If a church is going to exist in a certain area, that congregation needs to know the culture of that area. It needs to know what pain and suffering and hurt goes on around there because that might be the inroad to ministering to that need. So yeah, get to know your neighborhood And don't let it become invisible to you. Make it visible to your mind, to your understanding, so that you know how to connect with it and how to connect with the individuals who dwell there. Uh, A third thing that we might look at here in this text. In Jesus' story opening, 
He focuses only on the man's victimization and pain while omitting every other identifying detail. Now, we have talked about this in previous episodes. Uh, Jesus talks about this man's beating and humiliations, but he describes nothing else. And what makes this detail stand out is that when he describes the other three characters in the story, Jesus uses identifying terms to describe them. So why does he why does he do this? Why or why does Jesus um why is Jesus only describing the man's pain but no other identifying information? And I think the answer is that Jesus knows that our law expert is a man who would probably use a person's appearance to determine whether or not they were deserving of his mercy. And so I think Jesus in his story intentionally stripped away the man's descriptive nouns. So all that is left is the man's humanity and pain. Because that's all that should be needed for a passerby to determine whether or not he's going to extend mercy. So I think Jesus is challenging the law expert to look beyond appearance and see the injured man's inherent worth, his inherent human worth, or to see the image of God that exists within him. He's inviting the law expert to see people as God sees people. How do we apply this? Well, as individuals who are trying to seek Christ above all things, I think this challenges us to reframe how we discern people or adjust the measurements we use to evaluate people's value. And applying this is easier said than done, I know, both individually and communally. Because it's kind of funny, but in real life, or not funny, but you know what I mean. It's like, it, it, compared how Jesus' story contrasts with what goes on in real life. Because in real life, pain is not often lying openly and obviously on the side of the road, you know? Most of the time, people's pain is invisible. Pain is hidden. The world we live in often thrives by hiding reality behind curtains camouflaged in niceties. But behind the curtains or beneath the politeness, pain is throbbing. It is shooting through people's bodies and muscles and memories and nervous systems, existing as relived memories of all kinds of trauma. Most of the pain that needs addressing is the kind that needs to be uncovered or unveiled through careful conversation. A kind that can only be discerned by those 
who have learned to see the truth of someone lying beneath layers of kept-up appearances and false pretenses. They have learned to wear like armor. Christians and church cultures need to learn to see with such penetrating discernment. Pain is what the gospel is designed to address. And we need to learn to pay attention to people's pain. Our churches need to create cultures that don't sweep pain under the rug, but create safe environments and members where we can safely open up about the pain that we are experiencing. Now, a fourth thing. And this isn't so much an example of what to do. It's actually an example of what not to do. Both the priest and the Levite demonstrate how mercilessness is shaped by spaciousness. They both use space to avoid the man, but they do it in different ways. The priest possessed an elite and elevated status. He was in a position to lord it over others, to look down on people or work that he felt was beneath him. It frames a perceived hierarchical top-down spaciousness between those with an elevated status and those with common status. And in this case, the priest was in a position to use this space to avoid the injured man. By passing him by, the priest was using the space he believed his status afforded him to literally put space between him and the injured man. This, now, the spaciousness that the Levite utilizes is similar, but it's different. Because whereas the priest's use of space stems from his sense of elite status, the Levite's use of space comes from his heritage's sense of holy separateness. He creates space between himself and the injured man. Not, not from above like the priest, but from alongside the injured man. Believing himself to be set apart and perhaps presumptuously believing the man's injury was deserved because of sin, the Levite uses that separateness as spaciousness that justifies him from not having to help the injured man. This is not the spaciousness of one lording it over another like the priest, but the spaciousness of a brother choosing to not be his brother's keeper, to not come alongside his brother in need. And in our world today, we are still very familiar with these kinds of spaciousness, whether utilized by the powerful or the higher-ups or those we thought existed 
alongside us. It is a spaciousness that feels weaponized and wielded. A spaciousness that is wielded against people who exist in a lower status. A spaciousness that is utilized by those who don't think others are deserving of the presence or aid. And we see this in hierarchical systems without fail. Whether it's government or corporate world or even churches, there are figures and systems who will inevitably use their power and status to employ a spaciousness that reinforces suffering or is complicit in permitting the pain. Now, to be clear here, the spaciousness that I'm talking about here is a spaciousness that compounds suffering. In Jesus' story, the robbers directly caused the suffering by injuring the man. But when two men who have the capacity to help come along and don't stop but keep walking, it raises the probability that their avoidance or their spaciousness actually compounded or added to the suffering. And not just physically, but psychologically as well, mentally, emotionally. Imagine for a second that if this is where the story ended. Imagine there was no Samaritan who came along. And imagine the man lying in the dirt. Imagine that he eventually found the strength to either drag himself along the road a little bit or eventually find the strength to stand up and walk slowly back to the city, beaten and battered. And imagine him having to go the rest of his life seeing priests and Levites out on the road or in the streets or in the temple and being reminded that one of them passed him by instead of helping. That could understandably nurture a constant resentment and rejection of the priesthood, the temple, the Torah, and even God. And from this angle, I think the argument can be made that what the priest and the Levite did was even worse than what the robbers did. The robbers beat him up and stole his stuff, but the priest and the Levite reinforced the narrative that he is alone in this world and that not even God's people are there to help. That's what makes the spaciousness merciless and cruel. The application that I believe Jesus may be calling for here is that allowing or utilizing this kind of space to suffer is an example that Christians are not to learn or follow. And one reason we need the reminder is that sadly, many churches and Christians do allow space to suffer. Or they do allow a spaciousness that compounds the suffering. 
In the first episode of this series, I spoke briefly about how this passage started to weigh heavily on my heart during the pandemic. And I believe one of the reasons it did is because during that time of great suffering and struggle, there were a lot of churches and Christians that passed people in pain by on the other side. Now I know, there was a lot going on in those days. There was lots of pain, lots of confusion, endless chaos, widespread anger, and deep division. And when those levels of chaos emerge, sometimes the only thing people can do to not fall apart and survive is practice a guarded form of self-care, even if it does create space and distance between them, themselves and others. But that doesn't mean we are to learn the ways of space and distance. It doesn't mean we are to normalize passing others by on the other side. And sadly, I think that is what's happened to a lot of Christians and churches when they emerged from the pandemic. It had turned passing others by on the other side into a normalized regular practice. Do you remember the pandemic line? We're not all in the same boat, but we are in the same storm. After the pandemic storm had passed, there were a lot of Christians and churches whose behavior was like, I'm still not getting out of my boat to help, or I'm still not inviting you into my boat. And in the years that have passed, I still see and feel the spaciousness that was put in place in those days. I feel like spaciousness and isolation has become the real new normal for many. And in many ways, it seems like so much of what could be words of wisdom is still in some way shaped by the spaciousness or projected isolating isolation that has been adopted. You can hear, you can almost hear the priest or the Levite walking by the injured man, saying to him, healing is your responsibility, or I'll pray for you, or hey, you shouldn't have been in this neighborhood in the first place, or were you asking for it? Or, hey, you just need to develop thick skin and stand on your own two feet. Sometimes I even wonder if our social media connections are actually spaciousness in action, but cloaked in the appearance of connection to delude us into thinking we are experiencing real community. But whatever the case, Jesus told this story to the law expert because 
if he was to eventually become a true follower, he would need to learn to leave the self-preserving excuses behind and courageously close the space and distance and mercifully move towards the one in pain and need. And that brings us to a fifth thing that we can look at, and that is that the Samaritan demonstrates how radical mercy is conducted despite controversy. Jesus only began to deliver this parable once the law expert showed he was struggling with how to embody the law's central compound statement of you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. The law expert understood what was being said, but in his heart, he struggled with how to truthfully or wholly live out that love for a neighbor. Particularly, a neighbor he may have possessed hostility towards. In the story, he delivers in response, Jesus first uses two characters who embody how absurd mercilessness is when controversy is centralized, and that hostility is prioritized. And then, Jesus' third character, the Samaritan, is introduced to demonstrate how radical mercy is done despite whatever controversy or hostility may be present. And we don't need to know who the injured man really was, because this story is for the law expert, and we know what kind of a man he was. So when Jesus introduces a Samaritan character who embodies radical mercy, he's using this character to cut through the law expert's prejudices and hostilities to communicate that if you are going to love God and follow me, I don't care who you hate or dislike. Learn to live the way of mercy. And we see this radical mercy demonstrated in the extremes the Samaritan went to to help the injured man. Whereas the priest and the Levites saw the man and no reaction was noted, the Samaritan saw the man and felt compassion. And whereas the priest and the Levite just passed on by, the Samaritan went to the man and exerted much time and energy and resources and money to treat and restore the man. Those of you who love grammar might appreciate this one, but whereas only one verb is used of the priest and the Levite, there are about 11 verbs used to describe the actions the Samaritan took to help the man. While the priest and the Levite 
put distance between themselves and the injured man, the Samaritan went the distance to help him. How was the Samaritan able to do this? Because the Samaritan's narrator was the one already doing this. Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem to die in an act of mercy for a world that viewed him as their enemy. And how was Jesus able to do this? Because he was in the process of bringing a new world into being. The Deuteronomy and the Leviticus passages that the law expert quoted earlier were passages that were once authored as the Israelites were pursuing God's dream of a kingdom of holiness and love, a kingdom where former enemies could find redemption and peace, a kingdom where roadside beatings don't take place, a kingdom whose members don't go out of their way to avoid you, but come in close to love you. Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem to make that kingdom dream an official reality. And along the way, he was teaching his followers and whoever else would listen that their lives could be reflections of that good life as well. But they had to be people of mercy. People whose love for God is expressed in their love for people. And the law expert was one of those people. Jesus told him a story about a good Samaritan because he believed the law expert had the potential to live a life of kingdom goodness. And Jesus' story still calls us to be a people of his kingdom goodness. How do we apply this? Where do we start? Jesus' own words spell it out. Go and do likewise. Be the people who go the distance in living out the way of Christ's mercy. This whole parable started when the law expert asked Jesus, who is my neighbor? And by the time Jesus' parable is over with, he has reframed the question to focus on whether or not we are ready to be neighborly. Am I willing to be the neighbor? That is the question that we are left with today. Where do we start? We start by answering whether or not we are ready to be someone's neighbor. And that's where mercy begins. I want to thank you so very much for joining me on this series. I hope that you have found this content to be valuable and encouraging. 
and helpful. I hope that it has brought you some clarity. I hope that when we see each other later along the way, that we will both be participants in Christ's mercy. Thank you for joining me today on the Wayward Podcast, where we are learning to live life on the way of God's Word. This is my story. This is my song. Praising my Savior all the day long. This is my story. This is my song. Praising my Savior.